0: The purpose for this is to give each person the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, we no longer walk by the Spirit. We walk according to our sin nature. The only way to recover is to confess sin, and at that point, our ongoing relationship with God resumes, uh, our fellowship with God resumes, our abiding in Christ resumes, And in this uh, status, we are able to enjoy our fellowship with God and grow to spiritual maturity. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come before your throne of grace, that we can uh, ask your guidance and direction as we study the Word today. We, As we uh, walk by the Spirit and we're filled by the Spirit with your Word, we pray that we might come to understand Scripture more clearly, more accurately, that we may hide it in our hearts, that we might walk consistently with you. And, Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking now in this Bible class. In Christ's name, amen. All right, today we're going to look at another... Uh, promise, that is a much uh, memorized, frequently utilized promise from the Old Testament. We're going to go to Psalm 37. Now this is part of our Thessalonian study. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul told the Thessalonians, praise them because their faith, that is, their 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 active trust in God had garnered them such a reputation that it spread throughout Macedonia and, Acha- and Achaia. Paul said something very similar to the Romans when he uh, introduced his epistle to the Romans, saying that their faith had gone throughout all the world. They had developed a reputation because of their walk with God, and this reputation was going uh, around the world. It was being Twittered, and it was on Facebook page in the ancient world, whatever their versions of that was. So uh, from that, I started this, this sub-series on the Faith Rest drill, Drill and how we are to grow by means of faith, that is, trusting in the Lord. But we trust in something. It's not just faith in faith. Uh, That is the world system. That is pagan thought. You just believe, you just have confidence that somehow the universe is going to pull everything together for you. That's faith in something that's impersonal sometimes the uh, it 's expressed is just faith in faith, you just need to have a positive mental attitude, and there are even a number of churches in this in this country that if you really listen to what the pastors say they 're not teaching the bible they 're really just giving a a, a positive uh, message they 're just giving a motivational talk they 're not really giving anybody the Bible they, when you look at even how they might reference the Bible. It's just a cosmetic. It's just something that is superficial. It's just a veneer to deceive the masses that somehow they're learning something Christian. But they're not any different from many, many, uh, salesmanship meetings, many, many motivational speeches by, by atheists, by uh, people who are advocates of the New Age movement. And as Christians, we have a different concept of faith. Faith is related to knowledge. It's related to content. It's related to what we believe specifically about the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what he has revealed to us. So... When we talk about the faith rest drill, as I've said, there's three three steps. The first step is to claim a promise. Now, that promise uh, might be the whole verse. For example, the one we're going to look at today in Psalm 37, 4 through 5 is a great couple of verses to memorize. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. A lot of people just uh, memorize that, take it out of context, and say, well, um, God's going to give me whatever I want. It will make me happy, so therefore God will be happy. The wife of a well-known pastor in Houston was quoted in her little statement from the pulpit at that church went viral a couple of months ago uh, that God wants every Christian to be happy. And so if you're happy, then God's happy. And so God just wants you to be happy. Once again, this is just the mindless drivel that encourages the masses because they don't know anything about the Bible. Uh, they don't understand the context of this particular verse. This isn't saying that God's going to give you whatever you want. This isn't saying that God is a Santa Claus up in the sky, and if you just say it the right way and make a positive confession, then God's going to give you whatever you want. Uh, It's much more than that, and that is not part of the meaning of this particular passage. It goes on to say in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. so these are a great couple of verses to look at, so we can look at that we can claim a passage, we could just focus on part of it, maybe uh, trust uh, trust in him, and he will bring it to pass, or you might even look at another uh phrase that's included at least three times in this uh in this psalm, and that is the phrase that's translated. In, in verse, uh, verse one, do not fret because of evildoers. And so you just, something happens and you get set off and you're upset, angry about something. You might just remember, don't fret because of evildoers. And there are evildoers all around us, not just the evildoers over in ISIS or the evildoers in Hamas or the evildoers in, uh, Washington DC who are part of one political party or another, but it is Uh, people around us, we're constantly surrounded by people uh, that we're not even aware of many times who seek to take advantage of us and do us harm. So we can just grab a hold of part of a promise and we claim that and it focuses our attention upon biblical truth. Then step two is to think through the doctrinal rationales. And that's a great thing to do as you're claiming promises. You ought to have these promises memorized so that they're embedded in our soul. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart. So we've taken God's word and we've memorized it. And as you memorize it, you think it through and learn to analyze the thought, take out a pen and paper, write it out, write out the structure. You can, uh, if you're adept at using a grammatical diagramming, diagram it. If you just want to create some sort of a phrase, uh, phrase structures to understand, help you understand the relationship between the clauses and the phrases within the verse, that helps too. There are many different ways that you can do that that helps you remember it. And one way that's helpful in memorizing scripture is to go not only to say it over and over and over again but to write it over and over and over again and develop you can develop little games you can if a family's memorizing verses they can develop games around the dinner table uh, and you can off- offer rewards like those who memorize their verses get dessert if you don't too bad Always look for motivation. Rewards, it's a biblical concept. So step two, we think through those doctrinal rationales by writing out those verses. You can think about what is being said here and why is it being said. That may even lead you to Take it to another step which is to look at the words that are used. Even if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you can use a concordance, an English concordance to look up those words and get at least a rudimentary or elementary understanding of the of what the Hebrew or Greek words are. You can look up parallel passages that way and you can begin to develop a, a fuller understanding of what, uh, what the promise says. So That's thinking through the rationales, and then we come to a conclusion. And in that conclusion, our our mind is set that this is something we need to do so that we might even restructure the verse in a way that might be stated this way. I need to delight in the Lord. So he will give me the desires of my heart. I need to commit my way to the Lord and to trust in him so that he will bring it to pass. We structure it that way. It makes it more personal, and it brings us a certain level of conviction uh, with within the text. So those are the three stages, as I've gone over before, claim a promise think through the embedded rationales within the promise, and then arrive at a conclusion. So as we look at our uh, promise, the one that we often quote, people often hear, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So we need to ask some questions as you think through a verse, trying to help you understand how to think through a passage. You need to ask some questions. What does it mean to delight in the Lord? Does that have a special significance or a special meaning? What does the English word "delight" mean? What look that up in a good dictionary. Uh, what does if you have a concordance like a Strong's concordance or Young's concordance, you can you can look up the Hebrew word and figure out what that means. So, what does it mean to delight ourselves in the Lord? Even in the English, you can tell that that's a command that's addressed to us that we are to do this. This uh, command means that this is part of our responsibility as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question we should ask is, what does it mean that God will give us the desires of our heart? Does that mean that God's going to give us whatever we want? Or does it mean that God is going to replace our self-centered desires, our self-absorbed desires, our wrong desires based on the lust patterns of our sin nature with a new set of desires, a set of desires that are focused upon his will, his plan, his word, and then as we want what he wants, then he will supply uh, those desires to us. I think that it's more the latter than the former. Uh, Second, another question we should ask, is this some kind of bargain with God that if we just delight in him, that he will just give us whatever we want? Is that that a condition that if we delight in him, that's the condition for the result? We uh, could also ask the question, does this mean that if we just somehow learn how to commit something to him, that he will bring to pass whatever we desire? This is how a lot of people will read the scripture because they don't come with a lot of background in terms of understanding the word and the context of the word, and it's always important when we think through a rationale to look at context. Now, any passage of scripture has a context. It has the immediate context of the paragraph surrounding it. It has the broader context of the chapter, the section of the book that it's in. It's got the context of the book. It's got the context of of whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament. And then it has the context of the whole Bible. So you have a series of concentric circles. And ultimately, whenever we're understanding a verse, that part of the process of understanding what it means is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Otherwise, we can just yank a Scripture out of context And then it's easy to make it mean something that it it doesn't mean, that may even be just the opposite of what it's trying to communicate. So we need to think about this and think about this in the understanding of this particular psalm. So let's get a little background on this particular psalm. As we look at the text, I'm going to switch over here to uh, Lagos. And so we have the whole uh, psalm up here in, on the uh, on the board. You see that there is a title, there is a superscript there at the very beginning that is included in most in your English text, but actually in the Hebrew text that is part of the first verse. That is part of the inspired Word of God. It is not something that's inserted by the translators of the King James Bible or New American Standard or ESV or anything like that. That is part of the text. And sometimes it gives us a little more information about the circumstances or the situation uh, around which the psalm was written but in this case it doesn't do that it just says that this is a psalm of david so we know that david is the author of this psalm but we don't know anything uh specific about the context of this uh, of this psalm now i don't know when this is going to actually be shown in bible class or aired probably it may be sometime when I'm in Kiev in January. It may come a little later. Uh, if it comes much later, then what I'm saying is going to be uh, self-evident. But um, after we finish our dispensations class on on Tuesday night, I'm going to start teaching either dispensations or Romans, depending on which one I finish first. Uh, I'm going to start a series on First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel is like First and Second Kings. In the original Hebrew, it's one book. It was just divided because it was too large to put on one scroll, so in the hebrew uh, in the Hebrew text, it was divided into two parts, but actually, it should be studied as one uh, one whole book, just as we studied first and second kings as one whole book and in the context of studying uh, studying um, through Samuel and, and this won 't happen until we get into the latter half of the of the book, we're going to start studying the Psalms that David wrote within the context. So as we study the historical context in Samuel, when we hit a place where David wrote a Psalm in relation to those events, we're going to look at the Psalms. So that's going to be part of that study. And I'm even toying with the idea that uh, perhaps once we get into the life of David in the latter half of First Samuel, which won't be for another year or two probably, uh, doing a companion study on uh, on the Psalms of David on on the other midweek class, so that we're we're in uh, we're dealing with both of those at the same time. I think that would be uh, helpful uh, for people because the Psalms are all written within a context. And there's a lot to study there. I've taught through different Psalms and different promises before, but it's and I've taught through uh, Samuel before in the same way where I taught taught through the Psalms, but that's been a long time ago, and that will be um, so that that will be a good way to do that. I think people will will get a lot out of this. Now, when we look at Psalm 37, it's written by David. One of the things that we don 't see in the um, in the English text, which is true in the uh, Hebrew text, is that it is an, what is called an acrostic an acrostic is a particular arrangement where it 's written wh- where each verse begins with the uh, a sub- the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, so it follows the Hebrew alphabet, so the first word of the first uh, verse begins with Aleph, the second verse begins with a word that begins with Beit, the second word in the Hebrew alphabet, the third verse begins with the uh, third letter in the Hebrew alphabet, B, and then, and so on. So it's an acrostic. Now the purpose of an acrostic Was that it had a certain uh, pedagogical structure? It was designed to help people memorize the scripture. And in the ancient world, because people often didn't have their own Bibles, they didn't have their own copy of the Bible. A lot of emphasis was placed on memorizing the Word of God. It shames us. As much as I try to emphasize Bible memory, I don't know how much of an impact that actually has and if people actually memorize Scripture. I always remember a story that Arnold Fruchtenbaum told that he received. He comes from a line of people who were in the scribal tradition in Poland. And back in the 1600s, 1700s, if you were going to uh, uh, copy the scriptures, then the the way that they were copied, the the Jews had a very rigorous procedure in order to try to prevent copious errors. So everyone had, in the training to be a copyist, you would be trained from the time you were an infant in memorizing the Scripture. So that by the time you were five or six years old, you would have the entire Torah memorized. You think you have trouble memorizing a 100 verses. Well, they would have the entire Torah memorized by the time uh, they were six or seven years of age, and then by the time they were bar mitzvahed at, at, at 13, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized in in Hebrew, and then if in order to handle the the, the scribal functions, they would have to uh, pass an exam, and they would uh, as they were the, Arnold tells a story that they would take the the a, a, a Bible, and they would drive a nail through it, and they would turn to page two hundred and thirty one and say, okay, what word does that nail intersect on page 231? And you would have to be able to uh, identify that because they memorized uh, in terms of the pages. They knew they counted every letter that was on every page. They knew the b- first letter that w- should appear on the page and the last letter that should appear on the page and the middle letter that should appear on the page. So they had it memorized in terms of what it looked like per page and And so that would help them guarantee that their transcriptions would be free from from error so th- this idea of of writing a psalm in a way that it would be easy to memorize was uh, meant that they were writ- some of them were written a certain way, and some of them were uh, written as as uh as acrostics. The most well known acrostic is Psalm one hundred and nineteen Now, if you look at this particular psalm and you just uh, make some initial observations, it's a long psalm. It has uh, 40 verses uh, in the English text, and it has a theme related to God's righteousness. The theme emphasizes the righteousness of God in reference to the fact that the believer is living in a world surrounded by enemies And often one that, where he faces injustice, where, uh, those who are antagonistic to him, those who are antagonistic to the Word of God are prospering, but those who are faithful are impoverished, they don't seem to be advancing in the world around them, and so they are faced continuously with circumstances and situations of, of injustice. Now, if we look at the, at the text a little bit, just some observations. I'm just focusing primarily on the first part because the, we can develop the whole thing. But the first six verses, and we're really looking primarily at those, at those first six verses, although seven and eight are also, uh, good promises. You can memorize the first eight verses in this psalm and it would, uh, it would stand you in good stead. But if you look at, at how this is structured, look at verse one. Do not fret because of evildoers. Now look at verse seven. Uh, verse seven begins with the command, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. Look, see how we have a, 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 a. It's the ideas in between verse one and verse seven are bracketed by this command: "Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way." And this is repeated again in verse eight: "Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret." So three times within those first eight verses, we have this this command, this admonition to. Fret not, and that marks uh, something in relationship to the structure, and it certainly brings out an emphasis in the text that we are not to uh, be overly concerned with the fact that the unrighteous seem to be prospering. A second thing we observe as we look at this particular psalm is that the focus is on persevering in obedience as believers that we're not going to let external circumstances, opposition from people, the fact that people who obey the Word may not seem to be doing well, where people who do the Word, I mean, who are hostile to the Word seem to be doing well, we're not going to let that derail us. We're not going to be distracted by what happens around us and the fact that we're living in the devil's world. So a focus in this whole psalm is on persevering, enduring in the midst of opposition and hostility. And so it, it not only focuses on the, the, the idea of doing well, trust in the Lord and do well, but it emphasized many uh, parallel concepts to trust in the Lord, to commit to Him. Uh, trust in Him is used again. In, in verse five, resting in the Lord in verse seven, waiting patiently for him. all of these are words that that uh, reinforce our hope, our endurance and our trust in the Lord. The third observation is that the first six verses seem to be a unit in the in, by looking at it in the Hebrew, It seemed to be a unit which caused the believer to endure in difficult circumstances. And then verses 7 and following, the do not fret that we observed earlier in verses 7 and 8 begins that next section. So that idea of not getting uh, distracted by the situations around us and not letting it cause cause us to be upset is, uh, is repeated again at the beginning of each section. So that seems to be a significant point that the psalmist is making is don't, you know, to put it in the vernacular, don't get your panties in a wad over the fact that the unbeliever seems to be successful and believers are not. So that's, that's a very idiomatic translation. Another thing that we should note is in, as we come to the end of it, There is, as often we find in a conclusion, there's a repetition of the key ideas. And again, it is a a call on the part of the psalmist to the believer to endure in faith in light of future deliverance. Let me just read through those verses because we're not going to do an in-depth study. We read in verse 4, wait on the Lord and keep his way. And this is the same word that we see for wait in Isaiah uh, 40, 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord. And it's the idea of patiently and hopefully waiting. It's not just waiting and twiddling your thumbs, but waiting with that sense of hope or confident uh, confident expectation. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And so we should note that phrase, his way, that there is a path that is uh, set before us. That repeats the idea that's in verse five. Commit your way to the Lord, and it, it relates to verse twenty-three. Even says, says the um, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So you your steps are your moment by moment decisions as you go down the path, as you go down the way. So we wait on the Lord in confident expectation. We keep His way. We, we guard his way also would be a part of the meaning there. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. So that, that brings in a timing issue. It's not something that's going to happen immediately. It's not going to be something that may happen even in this life, for the promise was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would inherit the land, and they never did. the only time- ownership they had of any property in the land that God promised them were were grave sites where they they buried uh Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca uh, they did not own the land in terms of the way that God promised it so so it's deferred gratification, it's deferred reward. We may not see the justice uh, enacted by God in this present life, but we will see it in the future. That's our confident expectation. That's where hope comes into play. goes on to say, he shall exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Well, when does that take place? That takes place in the end times, in the final judgment, at the great white throne judgment. Then the psalmist and David says, I've seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. In other words, he's prospering. He's flourishing. He is productive. Uh The tree is producing fruit. And so here he sees... Uh, sees that how 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 prosperous the unrighteous was during this life, but then he concludes in verse thirty six. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. It was ephemeral. It was it, it just all of his success and prosperity disappeared. There was nothing left that would uh, endure or last into eternity. Uh, verse thirty seven, David says, "Mark the blameless man. Observe the upright." For the future of that man is peace. Now, in context, that's just not talking about future in this life, but future on into eternity. Verse 38, verse 38 says, But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. See, that's our hope, future deliverance. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. This isn't talking about future salvation here. I think this is talking about deliverance in time, that God will protect them. Uh, God shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in them. Now, it's possible this may have an eternity in heaven connotation, but normally the Word group Yasha in the Hebrew doesn't have eternity as its focus it's usually related to a temporal uh, temporal deliverance so we see in just in terms of looking at the conclusion that that we're we're focused on present problems, but the solution is often a long term solution, but that is why we are encouraged and challenged to endure in our faith in tr- actively trusting in God on the basis of his promises, uh, hoping in him in terms of confident expectation, uh, trusting and committing in him. There are certain parallel ideas, as I pointed out just a minute ago, the contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked is a parallel to what we find in Psalm 1. So, Let's just turn in our Bibles to Psalm 1 and look at how the Psalms are introduced. There's a view out there that I am looking at. It, it it's definitely has some attractive ideas to it. I haven't studied it in enough depth to commit to it as whether it's absolute or not, but I think there's a, a level of truth to it, and that is that in the not only in the writing of the Psalms, was the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit active, but uh, also in the organization of the psalms. And often we've been taught, and I've been taught, the psalms are just uh, basically atomized or uh, focused on individually that each psalm is unrelated to the other. But as I've been reading lately among a number of more conservative uh, writers that there is a belief that in the... Uh, whole canonization process and the organization process of the Old Testament, because many of the psalms were not written, or some of the psalms were not written until after uh, the Jews came back from Babylon. So it doesn't reach its final form until uh, sometime around 400 or so BC, and that it's that final form is significant and that that these these chapters were not just put in here randomly, but there there is an overall pattern uh, to the the psalms. So Psalm 1 is uh, is significant. It sets a tone of introduction uh, for the uh, entire uh, Psalter. Well, that didn't go anywhere. so let's see what we see in the first psalm is that there is a contrast between the way of the righteous and the path of the unrighteous or the ungodly, and we see a description there uh, of the two different paths. so it begins with a focus upon the uh the spiritually growing the spiritually maturing believer the one who is described as righteous, this is who he is. And so this is explained in verses 1 through 3, blessed or happy. Uh, It's not a happiness that is necessarily emotional, that is based on circumstances, but has more of a stability than that. But it is definitely a positive attitude, that is found within the believer who is walking with God. Despite whatever opposition uh, he might face, no matter what difficulties uh, he might face, no matter what tragedies in life might come his way, he is described as blessed, he, which has that idea of happy, stable, tranquil content uh, with, with his life because his focus is on the Lord. And this is followed by the statement, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So what we see here is three things he doesn't do. He's described as blessed because of things that are excluded from his life. And you might also note that there's a progression in activity here. He's not walking, he's not standing, he's not sitting. So you walk. Has movement standing is you've taken up a position, and then sitting implies that you are uh, committing yourself to a particular position. So he's not following in the in the counsel of the ungodly. He's rejecting human viewpoint. He's not going to stand in the path in the way of sinners. That is those who are opposed to God, and he is not going to take up uh, residence of the scornful those who are. Actively voicing their opposition to the word. In contrast to those three negatives, his delight. There's our word again that we find over in um, in Psalm 37. Delight in the Lord. It has that idea of, of exuberance, something positive, something that he's enthusiastic about. He has a passion to know the Word of God. This isn't just something that, that he enjoys on occasion, but something that characterizes his life as a passionate focus on the Word. This is what should characterize every growing believer. And when you are passionate about the Word of God, then you talk about it. You share it with people. It's part of your life. It's something that gives you uh, enthusiasm, and you look forward to learning it, and you look forward to reading it. And many of us were that way when we were first saved. We just couldn't wait to learn it. Later on, we have a more mature enthusiasm for the Word. But sometimes, as people grow and mature spiritually, they lose that enthusiasm for, for the Word, and next thing you know, they're just sort of coasting coasting along. I found it interesting that as sort of a uh, an observation I have made over over the years is that the, I especially see this in a distinctive way among uh pastors among people who have the gift of pastor teacher that doesn't mean that if you're exuberant about the word you have a great love to study the word that you have the gift of pastor teacher i think it works the other way i think people who have the gift of pastor teacher exhibit this i've with one exception i've never sat down with a pastor or somebody who thought they had the gift of pastor teacher that didn't want to talk about the word. Well, what do you think about this? Well, what about that passage? Well, how do you put this together? I mean, within five minutes you're talking about it. I do know one man who's a pastor that I've known for a number of years and never has talked. I've never heard him talk personally about the Bible. Never seemed to enter his conversation. Football. You know, this, that, current events never seem to do that. So I always wondered whether or not he actually had the gift of pastor teacher. Anyway, every believer that's growing should be enthusiastic about the word. We talk with other people about our enthusiasms, the things that we are interested in uh, display in our lives. And that's this idea. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. I think the second clause, the second strophe there, is a development from the first. Because you delight in the, in the Word of the Law, I mean the Word of the Lord, because you delight in the Law of the Lord, you think about it all the time. That's the idea of meditating day and night. That it doesn't mean that you don't think about your work. It doesn't mean you don't plan activities for your family or your kids. It doesn't mean that you don't think about your other hobbies. But, but throughout the day, you take time to think about the Word. And it is something that is continual. You want to know God better. And so the only uh, way that you can do that is by focusing upon the Word. And there's a result that's given in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, in Texas, there are certain trees that if you see them, then you know that water is nearby. If you see a sycamore tree, if you see a willow tree, you know that water is nearby. These are, are trees that demand a tremendous amount of water. And often if you go out into central Texas in the hill country or out into west Texas, if you're where where there may not be a lot of trees, and off in the distance you spot a sycamore tree or a willow tree, then you can be pretty sure that you're going to find a spring nearby uh, that is providing the the water that is necessary for the, those uh, those trees. And that's often how the pi- pioneers would find water uh, back during the uh, 1800s as they were exploring Texas and exploring the West. They would look for trees like that that were near near water. And so uh the Psalmist says here that this is this is what you're like because you're being nourished, you're being fed by the word. It brings forth its fruit in its season, and its leaf shall not wither. And whatever it does, it shall prosper. Now, this isn't the so-called prosperity gospel. It is that as we live our life before the Lord, our soul will prosper. That's the idea when the Word talks about this. Our spiritual life will be healthy and robust, and we will grow and be fruitful in our spiritual life. In contrast, the path of the unbeliever, the ungodly, are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, chaff... Is part of the uh, what happens after you cut the wheat and you separate that which is not wheat, the chaff, just the brittle stuff, whatever uh, away from the the wheat itself, and this would be done in the ancient world. they would have threshing floors. And they would use, uh, wooden rakes to throw the wheat up in the air, and then the wind would catch the lighter material that was the chaff and blow it away. And so you'd be left then with the, uh, the fruit of the wheat, that is, uh, the grain, and that which was, uh, useless. That which had no value was blown away, and that 's the chaff. the ungodly is someone who has no value he 's not going to last, he will eventually be driven away so that that 's the contrast the The righteous is someone who focuses on the Lord, and he is going to be productive, and the ungodly are not are going to be worthless they 're not going to be productive. And therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. So there's an end time focus there just as there is in Psalm 37 that ultimately vindication comes in the final judgment of God. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, final statement in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, I think this is, t- this isn't talking about, uh, don't, don't read New Testament theology back into this. This is t- throughout wisdom literature. We studied this in Proverbs. Without wisdom literature, there's this depiction of the life of the believer. He has a choice to go the, through the, a lifestyle of righteousness and obedience to Torah or disobedience to Torah. And the focus here isn't upon uh, ultimate destiny in heaven, but upon walking with the Lord or not walking with the Lord in this life. So that don't read into this uh, the idea the Lord knows the way of the believer, but the way of the unbeliever shall perish. It's not talk. That's not what it's talking about. You can be a believer and live an ungodly lifestyle, and when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a loss of rewards everything that you did in life is burned up it's like the chaff it's blown away and there's nothing that survives uh, survives the judgment uh, but the way of the righteous will be rewarded it will be made evident at the judgment seat of christ the point i want to make here in terms of what we're looking at in psalm 37 is that there's this contrast in the background between two different ways of life now that helps us when we start looking at the context of our promise when we look at the context of that promise the, the 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 focus is between the person whose path is committed to the lord the person whose path is committed to the lord within uh, wisdom literature, and this is considered a wisdom psalm, like Psalm One, is the way of the righteous, the path of the righteous. So this isn't a person who is committed to his own way. It's not the person who is sitting in the, uh, who is walking in the path of the, uh, or the counsel of the ungodly, or sitting, or standing in the path of sinners, or sitting in the seat of the scornful. This is the person who is committed to the path of the Lord. This is the the way of the righteous. So when we look at the context here in terms of who is being addressed, uh, the believer is being addressed and he's being given instruction. And this is also, a, it's a wisdom psalm, which means it has a, a pedagogical, didactic, or instructional significance. It is designed to teach us how we should live as, as believers. And so the focus here is not upon uh, eternal destiny that when we get, look at a passage like verse t- three, trust in the Lord and do good, that isn't talking about the fact that if you want to be saved, you not only have to believe in the Lord, but live a good life. Uh, that misses the whole focal point here in these verses. But unfortunately, there are people who take it that way. And that that uh, really has an impact on uh de- destroying the purity of their gospel they have an, anath- an anathematized gospel according to galatians uh, chapter 1 verses uh, 6 and 7 is that that they're not teaching the true gospel it's been um it's 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 been perverted by adding works to it the focus here is uh, isn't on how to have eternal justification and eternal life but how to experience the benefits and the blessing, the happiness of God of the righteous in Psalm One, in the midst of this life. So we have to understand the language here in light of the context of of the Psalms and the light of the context of wisdom literature within within Scripture. So that helps us to understand its its uh, its significance. Now it begins if we look at the immediate context now. It begins with a command, a, a prohibition. It's stated in the strongest form of prohibition that you can use in in the Hebrew language. And so, there are different ways in which we express things. We say, "Well, you should not do that," or "That might not be a good idea." And we say, then we say, "You should absolutely never do that." And so, this is the strongest form. Uh, Of admonition directed to believers. And it starts with this command, do not fret. Now I want you to look at those verses, the the verse up there on the screen. Do not fret. Look at that. We've got another distortion. This happened, um, this happened a couple of weeks ago. So we're just going to have to, I can't take time now to straighten that out. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. What's contrasted? What do we have that's parallel here? We have the words evildoers and workers of iniquity. That in, in the Psalms, Psalms are poetry and they don't rhyme words like we do in English. They rhyme, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas in places, and that's called Parallelism, and in this case it's an, it's a synonymous parallelism where the two ideas are are roughly parallel. one helps us understand what is being said by the other, and the commands are also somewhat parallel. do not fret and do not be envious they 're not exactly the same, but they are very closely related, and so the second line helps develop our understanding of the first line by stating it in a slightly different way so the first command is not to fret which is a fun word in the english uh, you don't hear a lot of people talking about fretting and so we need to understand its its um, its basic sense in the hebrew the hebrew word is hara. it's in the hitpael stem which is a causative stem and all these different stems basically meaning mean is that they have different senses or meanings uh, in that one stem may be quite different from the meaning in the cow stem. And here the word hara just means to burn, uh, to be angry. Uh, idiomatically, I would say uh, getting all worked up. It, it, the core semantic value of the term is that something is becoming heated or burned or kindled. Thus, it was applied to the concept of anger. In the Old Testament, Hebrew doesn't have a lot of abstract concepts when it relates to emotions. So you don't really have a, a literal word for anger. You usually have a word related to don't burn. Uh, because when you get upset or angry your temperature goes up, your face becomes flushed. And a typical idiom that you have in the Old Testament that is usually just literally translated as don't get angry, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's what's called an anthropomorphism. It uses a for, an English, uh, a a, a, uh, a man's a human being's form or physical feature to express a, a, uh, an abstract concept, literally it says in the Hebrew, don't let your nose burn. And so that's, that's an anthropomorphism, but what it means idiomatically is don't get angry. And so you have that same idea here is don't get angry. Don't get all worked up. Don't get, don't, don't burn. Don't become, uh, excited or agitated. Don't become incensed, uh, it's not merely the idea of fretting. To me, the fretting is sort of somebody who's just a little bit worried, and they're not sure what's going to happen this afternoon. They're sort of wringing their hands, and this is a much more intense idea. Uh, it's somebody who's uh, who's worried, who's uh, goes beyond just simply brooding about something, but he is deeply distressed, and he he is. Um, has a, there's a passionate intensity here, and, and his indignation at some injustice, uh, is overwhelming. So that he looks at a situation and just gets angry, and that anger just takes over. And so we could translate this don't get all worked up, don't get bent out of shape, don't get your knickers in a knot. All of these would, uh, communicate this, just relax and trust in God. In fact, what we're seeing in these, these two, uh, parallel concepts here of, of uh, fretting and being envious or is, is when you do this, you're not trusting God. That when you get all bent out of shape, you watch something on, on, on some news item and it just, just absolutely drives you nuts. Whether it's the verdict of some court case, uh, there have been a number of court cases where it appears that a husband has uh, beaten or killed, murdered his wife, and the guy gets off. And there are people who think, well, you know, if you live in the, those states where that's happened, then you get a get out of jail free card because they're not really too concerned about prosecuting wife killers. And some women have gotten very upset over that uh, over that particular uh, situation. There are a lot of things that are going on around us that are are unjust, that are wrong. And if we as believers focus on them, uh, we can get uh, quite bent out of shape. I read something last night that got me bent out of shape. And this is something that we should be very much concerned about. It's happened in just the last week. Apparently this court case had been going on for a couple of years. This was reported in the... Uh, area of Lexington, uh, Kentucky, and the Lexington Fayette Urban County Human Rights Commission has reached a decision in a case where there was a guy who had a t-shirt shop, and he prints up t-shirts for all kinds of people. He hires all kinds of people. He has hired and done work for people who are, uh, homosexual, who are lesbian, uh, all kinds of different groups. That's never been an issue, but a gay lesbian, uh, uh, group uh, came to him and wanted him to print T-shirts for their Lexington Pride Festival in 2012. And the message on the T-shirt was one that um, uh, he did not want to endorse, and so he declined to take the order and was not going to print it. They took him to court. He was defended by the Alliance of Defending Freedom, which is a group that, uh, takes on cases like this that are First Amendment rights cases and uh, arguing that no one should be for- forced by the government, which is the Human Rights Commission, or by any other citizen to uh, endorse or promote ideas with which they don't agree. They found against him so that now not only is he... Uh, has he found is a violator of the law, and he's going to suffer whatever other penalties they've assessed, but also they have mandated that he and every one of his employees go through diversity training. This is the worst form of tyranny. This is telling someone that if you are deeply committed to a religious system, then you have to leave it at home. It can't impact you at the workplace. It can have nothing to do with you in terms of your values at work, in terms of uh, the decisions you make. And if it does, then we are going to mandate as a government that you become re-educated. You, we have to send you to a re-education training system so that you will learn to appreciate diversity. This is nothing more than tyranny and I believe that this is a case where this man needs to, he needs to continue to appeal this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And if this is allowed to stand, then this would be one of those cases where Christian employers, uh, owners of a business, have every right to stand up in terms of civil disobedience because you're being told by the government to do something that violates your uh, your, your belief in God. And it's not just a First Amendment issue. This is where the, if the government is mandating you as an individual to go through diversity training then they are telling you that they want to re-educate your value system and this violates the Word of God. So that would be a legitimate case for... Uh, disobedience, not necessarily going out. I'm not talking by civil disobedience. I don't necessarily mean going out and marching in the streets or things like that, just saying, no, I'm not going to do it. You can throw me in jail or whatever, but I'm going to stick with with my belief. This is where we're headed as as a country. Now, when we look at that, there are many of us who are just our blood pressure is going to go right off the charts. And that's, uh, that's what mine was. Unfortunately, at the time I was thinking through this very passage don't fret. Don't let these things bother you. That, and and it, we have to learn that again and again. So that's our context. We're just starting on context. I'll come back next time. We'll drill down a little more in the context and then look at the significance of this particular promise. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your word, to be reminded of its application and its implications, and that as believers we see so many things in our, in our country and in the culture around us that distress us uh, profoundly. And yet what your word is saying is don't be distressed. Don't let it get to you. Don't Uh, react in that way that we, that is a sign of a lack of trust in you. That we need to have our focus on the long term plan that you have and on the end game and put all of these issues of injustice in the world today in your hands and focus upon our responsibilities to grow and mature as to believers, to learn your word, and to work, uh, the best we can within the structures that we have and obedience to you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with what we've learned in this study, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.